Quite honestly, friends, I can't tell if it was always this way, but I noticed it for my own personal observation uh, back in the, in the first election of Barack Obama. And I just came up with this simple phrase, which is probably, maybe I'd heard it elsewhere. I, I don't even know, to be honest with you, but it made sense to me. Whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome. Because it became clear that what's, what happens during campaign seasons is everybody's pushing for a narrative that will cause people to respond in such a way that they'll vote for uh, the desired candidate of the narrative pusher. And it was out of that that I, I sensed that, the, you know, the liberals were much better at controlling the narrative. And I predicted Hillary would win eight years after his first election because they, they know how to control the narrative, and conservatives are terrible at it. They're terrible. And so I just expected Hillary would, would win. Um, and I think my expectation was accurate, except what happened just before she, as we got near the end of the 2016 election, the narrative got altered with things we couldn't have seen. Something called WikiLeaks came out. Um, a guy by the name of Donald Trump, who's crazy with tweets, came out. And not a, he wouldn't back down like the others on that side of the camp always did. And the narrative changed. And it wound up that he just, you know, he, to a great degree, sucked up all the oxygen in the room because he was always out there doing crazy things and everybody wanted to cover him because they knew they were getting ratings. And it changed things. So we wound up with him as our president. Well, nothing, it, it changed the outcome of the election, but it didn't change the outcome or, or the, this dynamic. Whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome. It's about the narrative, and people will put forth whatever narrative they think is necessary. So I noticed in the news yesterday, the news feed we get, I, uh, I get it on my laptop, but most of it I won't even read because I realize it's a play, they're playing a narrative here, and that's all they're doing, and so I'm not interested in reading the articles because I don't trust them. But here, here, here's what I noticed. One article had this heading, Some media praise Trump job numbers while others worry he broke protocol. If you're listening to the news this week, you know that the job numbers that came out were incredibly good. That the, the unemployment number is lowest in like 40 or 50 years. The, uh, the unemployment among blacks reached another record low. Uh, the unemployment number among Hispanics is very, very low. And uh, more jobs were created than were expected. So the reality is that if you look at that and you line this up with that, one might draw the conclusion that, wow, you know the stuff that Trump initiated a while ago? Remember? And how did we, how'd you deal with that narrative? All right? Some said, it's going to change everything. It's going to be incredible. And then you have somebody like Pelosi saying, yeah, all he did was give money back to all the wealthy people, and it was crumbs for the common people. You recall that comment. Why? Because she's, she's wanting to make sure the narrative goes in a particular direction. And so with this, this, uh, this article that's headed up here, some media praise Trump job numbers. Why? Because they want a positive narrative on him, while others worry he broke protocol. Well, this guy's going to break more protocols as time goes on. I don't think it matters at a, a whole lot to him. I'm not saying good or bad. He's going to continue to do it. So rather than looking at the great job numbers, we're going to tell you he did something that isn't typically done. And now we can all be stirred up about Donald Trump. Or we can be excited about Donald Trump. Because whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome. 
Another headline said this, illegal and unprecedented, liberal media embarrassed themselves over Trump hinting at good jobs report. And the point here now I thought was interesting, rather than we're going to put this narrative about Trump or this narrative about Trump, this person is pushing this narrative about the media. And they're going to tell you why the media is goofy, okay? So they got their own narrative now that they're pushing. The only point being, whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome. Plain and simple. It's about the narrative. Now, I, I, I throw all of that out there for this simple reality. As we come to the book of Esther in our series, Esther is entirely about the narrative. In fact, that's all it is. It's a narrative. You get into the book of Esther, you don't, you don't find, you know, moralistic teachings like, you know, love your neighbor, be honest in your business dealings. You get a story. It is entirely a narrative about something that happened back in Persia. Now, it takes place at the time... As we've been looking at this, we've been following a historical narrative along, and we came to these last two books were Ezra and Nehemiah, and you will recall if you've been with us, in Ezra, we've got these two waves of people returning from Persia back to uh, Jerusalem, and they lay a foundation for the temple. And that's where Ezra takes us. We see this temple being put in place. And then by the time we get to Nehemiah, a number of decades earlier or later, now we're going to build a wall around that temple. And you guys will never forget Nehemiah, right? Because we're just going to complete the circle. They build that wall all the way around Nehemiah. You remember that. You'll never forget that. That's what Nehemiah does. They build the wall. Well, in the midst of all of that, Esther... She, her story is told, she's the heroine in the story, her story is told and it all takes place back in Persia. So these are some of the Jews who haven't left yet, because remember they came in waves, in three different waves? Well, the ones who are there haven't come back yet to be in Israel. And it's a narrative. This event happened. But what I want to point out, that as, as just as, as Esther is a narrative... By the time you're done, you're very much aware that it is not simply about the narrative. It's about the meta-narrative. Now, what's the meta-narrative? The narrative is what we read. The meta-narrative is what we understand is happening behind the scenes. And in this particular case, what makes it so intriguing is you get this story about what happened in Persia. You get the story told... Many of you know this without one reference to the name of God in the story. He's never referenced. Yet, he is central to the entire book. He is working so significantly that if you just read the book, by the time you're done, if you just pay a little bit of attention, you'll say, as Mike said, about what's taken place this past week, about what took place, as all these things line up, you'll say, there's no other way to explain this then God has been at work, even though he's not named. So if you've never read the book of Esther, I really encourage you. It's a delightful book to read. I truly encourage you, read it, preferably today, in the fact that we have, we've read this. It won't take you that long to read the entire book, read the entire story. And uh, it, it just, it's a great story. So you want that. But in order to understand our memory verse, which we will get to for this week, in order to understand it, we need to understand the narrative. 
the only way we can grasp what's going on here. So, we've already said, it takes place in Persia. And during that time, there's a king by the name of Ahasuerus. And this king, it's about his third year into his reign, and he, had, he, he reigns over 127 provinces. So his kingdom is expansive. And when kings have expansive kingdoms, their pride begins to get a good hold of them because they want to show off their power and their wealth and all that it is that they stand for. So he literally brings in the leaders from his nation, probably from some other nations. He brings them in for six months. He's showing them the magnificence of his kingdom. And at the end of the six months, he throws a big party. Woohoo! We are going to get down with our bad selves. We're going to, we are going to drink wine out of gold cups for an entire week, and no two of these cups are going to be the same. All right? These gold cups demonstrate the wealth that is in Persia at this time. It is a magnificent place, and the king is proud of it. And after, or while he's, while he's having his celebration, his wife goes and does the, the women's thing. So she has her little women's ministry, okay, that's happening over here. And they're having women of the word over here, okay. That's like this Thursday, right? Right? This, this Thursday, women of the word. Yes, there it is. Okay, like, she did not like the fact that I mentioned that, I promise you. Okay, but anyways, here we got, we got women of the word over here while the man cave is going on over here. And the man cave over here is like, really, really, these guys are important. They're significant. And the guy's over here, and I think they probably had a little too much to drink out of those golden glasses. They begin to get this conversation going, and, and, and the king decides, you know what would really be neat? Here's the ultimate way I can impress these guys. I got a hot wife, and they're really going to know that I have arrived. So I think what we'll do, let's bring her in. Make sure she's got her royal crown on with all of the wealth and the jewels and the gold. And I'm just going to show off my wife. So he calls for his wife to come from Women of the Word to come be the center of attention at the man cave. Now his wife is one of the original women's livers because she goes, gets the word and goes, not on your life. I'm not about to walk into there and be humiliated in front of, with, by you, in front of all your drunken leaders and important men. I'm not coming. Sober up. We'll have a conversation about what to do in the future. But right now, I'm not coming. Well, that creates a problem. After all, this guy's the most powerful guy in the world. And his wife just stood him up in front of all of these leaders. So he says, guys, what are we going to do here? I think another name for this book could be Kings who have stupid counsel given to them. Just strikes me. So they say, well, here's what needs to happen. One, you need to dethrone her. Because there's a bigger problem here. Don't you see it, old king Ahasuerus? If she gets away with this, our wives are all going to do the same thing. We're going to lose a little bit of that authority in our home. And so you need to dethrone her and then send word to all 127 provinces that, yeah, we, you know, she's no longer the queen. And... Notice how at the end, he sent, they do send word out to all the provinces. He, went, he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house. Whoo-wee! All right, so they really, they really did it good this time, boy. They really showed that the king's the king, and every man's, you know, king in his own palace. Whoo, we're great. Okay. Yeah, well, a little bit later, he begins to realize he misses his queen. 
and the king ought to have a queen. So now he hits this depression over what's going on, and he's missing Vashti, so he gets more incredible counsel, and that is, hey, here's what you do now, because uh, you're the king, you get to do this, go throughout the 127 provinces, bring all the beautiful young virgins here, and you have yourself a good time till you find one of them who pleases you. So they go out and they collect all the beautiful young virgins that they're going to come and and they're going to be a part of the king's harem. And there's one in particular, Esther. You guessed it was going to be about her. And Esther is taken because she's beautiful. Esther's been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, and uh, he instructs her when she's being taken to the king. He instructs her, he says... For now, let's not make a big deal out of the fact that you're an Israelite. And let's just see where this thing goes. So, doesn't declare that, uh, that she is an Israelite. And as you might guess, out of all the women that have been gathered throughout the nation, Esther is the one who pleases the king. So he makes her the queen. He even has a festival for her that it ends in verse 18. The king made a great feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants. He proclaimed a holiday in the provinces, gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Who would ever celebrate that a royal person uh, had a wife? <laughs> yeah, it still goes on, doesn't it? We, we just watched a wedding a couple weeks ago in England, all right? And also, I think, you know, the way he did this, this was the original version of The Bachelor, right? They think they had this really creative idea. I think they stole it from the book of Esther. Right? They said, hey, I'll take this one guy and get all these beautiful women around him, and he'll pick one. And that's about what they did. So that's interesting. But now that she's, in, now that she's there with the king, her older cousin Mordecai, who's concerned about her, he moves into close proximity to the castle, outside the gates, so he can get word in and out and find out what's going on here. As it turns out, while he's hanging around the gates, there's a couple of gatekeepers who they kind of got upset with the king. They plotted to kill the king. He sends word in through Esther and says, hey, there's a plot to kill the king. Esther tells the king. The king looks into it, does a Mueller investigation. See, things haven't changed, have they? It's all the same. Stuff just keeps happening the way it does now. Does investigation, finds out that there really was a plot against the king. They hang these two guys, and the king is safe. And the story goes on. Next, what we find out in this story is there's a guy by the name of Haman. The king likes Haman. Haman is a, Haman is a descendant of Agag. Now, that you've got to look back about 500 years to understand where that connects. But he's a descendant of Agag. He's an Agagite. And the king raises him up to a significant position. And he gets so proud over, uh, over what is happening in his own life that um, it's made, a decree is made that everybody needs to bow down to him. Everybody should be bowing down to Haman. There's this one guy who won't bow down to Haman, though, when he goes by. His name is Mordecai, cousin to Esther, refuses to do that. Again, we could look back and maybe trace a resentment that goes back for centuries Nonetheless, this is what's happening. This just sticks in Haman's craw. He can't have this. 
So he gets some more counsel. He too gets counsel that says, hey, here's what we can do. Let's cast lots for a day. And on that day, let's get the king to agree that these people, these, because Mordecai's an Israelite, they are, they're obviously rebellious. They're going to ruin the king. They're going to ruin the kingdom. Let's wipe them out. Kill, destroy, annihilate. And he gets the king to agree to this. So now letters go out again to all the provinces that on this particular day, People are perfectly permitted to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews living in their provinces. It's now law. Of course, now the Jews are all a little bit upset that they're about to be wiped out. And so when Haman hears about this, he sends word into Esther. And he says, are you aware of what's going on? Your great king, your husband, has just decreed that we are all to be annihilated. She's like, what can I do? I can't go in and address the king. I cannot walk into him. That's illegal. In fact, if I just walk into him and he doesn't receive me, I will be put to death. That's the law. If I do just walk into him unrequested, there is that chance that if he decides to receive me, he'll hold out his golden scepter, and then he'll hear my request. But I could die for approaching him, just going into into his throne room. So this is where our memory verse comes in. If you would, Preston. And verse, uh, our memory verse is verse 14, but we've got it from chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai told them, because now it goes through people because he's not talking to her directly. He's outside. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Here's our memory verse. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther recognizes that there's no easy way out here. There is only one hope or else her entire people are going to be annihilated and herself with them. And so she says, "Uh, pray for me fast and I will go into the king. And she does. And the king does raise his scepter her. And uh, she had said upon committing to do this, she said, if I perish, I perish. But there's no good alternative here. So something has to happen. So she goes into the king. King raises his scepter says, what is it that, that you would like? And um, he, he or, or she says to the king, will you please come to uh, uh, you and Haman? Come to a, a dinner tomorrow. I'm looking at a clock, so I got to, I'm going to speed this up just a little bit. During the context of the next couple of days, you're going to come to one dinner, and then when you go there, you're going to say, hey, come back tomorrow. Now, Haman is all excited that he personally, with the king, is being invited to the queen's dinner. You got that? All right. Additionally, at the same time, word gets uh, spoken to the king that, that uh, you know, that guy who saved your life because of those gatekeepers who were do a rebellion against you, they were going to kill you, he saved your life. Nothing's ever happened for him. King recognizes that and says, we need to do something for him. So he goes to Haman and he says, hey, hey, what should we do for the guy who the king wants to honor? Haman thinks, because all these things are going well for Haman, thinks, who could he be talking about more than me? Right? This is another name you could have for this book is men and their stupid pride. But hey, this is, how, this is how we are, guys. All right, so he... 
He thinks he's talking about me. So here's what you do. Put royal garments on him. Put them on a special horse. Have them paraded through the city saying, this is what the king does for the man he wants to honor. And the king says, great idea, Haman. Do that for Mordecai. Of course, Haman now, he's like, dude, that was going to be for me. And Mordecai's the guy he hates because Mordecai will not bow down to him. And he's trying to kill all of Mordecai's entire nation. And so he's kind of, that's a little depressing to him. But he still gets to go to the king, to the queen's dinner with the king. So... In the midst of all of this, this happens. Then he goes to the first dinner. She invites him to the second dinner. At the second dinner, she says to the king, when he says, what is it? What is it you want? He says, it's been determined to kill all of my people. Because till that point, they didn't know she was Jewish. All my people. And it's been determined by the hand of Haman. And now the king, he's just furious as to what has happened and how he's been hoodwinked into this. So he steps out of the room to process what's going on. He's kind of in a rage. Haman recognizes for the first time Esther is an Israelite. And this, this decree that he had made in order to kill all the Israelites, to kill, steal, and destroy, is going to take the queen out of the picture. And he's the one who put that in motion. He knows he's in a world of hurt. So then he falls on his knees right in front of the queen. She's sitting on her couch. He's going to beg her for forgiveness. Esther, I did not know. And the king who'd walked out in a fury walks in. He misunderstands what he sees. Because he thinks with her on her couch and Haman right there all over her, he thinks he's trying to seduce or assault his wife. Now he's livid. And... He is so angry, he says, cover his face, which means we're going to execute that guy. Now, some people who understand the whole thing that's happening, they say, hey, uh, he's having a gallows built. He'd be, oh, by the way, Haman had been counseled to have a gallows built for Mordecai because he wouldn't bow. He's having gallows built for Mordecai to hang him. And the king says, oh, yeah, hang him on his own gallows that he had planned for Mordecai. Then, wrapping up the story is this. Mordecai then gets word and becomes a significant person, significant player. They can't deny the decree that went out to kill the, uh, be able to kill, steal, and destroy all of, the, uh, all of the Jews. So the king sends out a second decree that says the Jews can defend themselves. Where before they couldn't. And now they can defend themselves. So if you're going to take on a Jew in your area, guess what? He's going to be ready for you. And we uphold their, their right to defend their own lives. As it turns out, Mordecai becomes very significant in the kingdom. The Jews are saved through all of this. And what ultimately comes out of it is a feast known as the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim is one of only two feasts that are not identified in the Mosaic Covenant. That and Hanukkah. And it's something that annually the people of Israel would remember that time when Esther had gone into the king and saved the nation. Now, the poor means the lot. And that was the lot was what was cast to select the day that Haman was going to say, here's where we should kill all the Jews. And so it's the feast of that lot that was being, that was being cast. And how the nation was saved. You follow that? All right. That's just a story that's told. That's the book of Esther. Fascinating story. You really should read it for yourself. It'll make sense to you. If you've never read it before, having seen this, uh, gotten this little synopsis, it'll make sense for you. So what does all of that mean to us? 
Two thoughts, friends. Number one, God's team is going to win. The word that Mordecai gave to Esther, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God's going to bring protection. God is going to see to it that something good is going to happen to protect the people. You see, friends, here's the point. He didn't say God would do it. He didn't say it, but it's going to come. Why? Because there's a meta-narrative. Because God is at work. And He is aware of that. Deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. See, this is an attempt. This is bigger. And here's the meta-narrative concept. This is bigger than simply God protecting the Jews at that moment. God's protecting something much bigger in protecting the Jewish nation. Do you know what it is? It's the arrival of Christ, not yet to come for another four, four or five centuries. That's what's being protected. That's the meta-narrative. Looks like we're only dealing with a specific group of people, a specific time in Persia. No. God's promise of a coming Redeemer must be protected, and this is an attempt to wipe out the entire nation so the Redeemer would never come. That's the meta-narrative. This comes out of the depths of hell, this idea to wipe out the entire nation. But God's team is going to win, you see. And guess what? God controls the narrative. God said Christ will come, and He will come. Because God is in control. That's number one. Second question. This is just a question for us to consider. All right? God's team is going to win. Whose team do we want to play on? That was the challenge to Esther. What team are you going to play on? See, because she could be on either one, couldn't she? She could be, hey, I'm with the Royals. You know? You know that's all. We'll never be Royals. Okay? She was. I got to be royals. Why would I disrupt this? He's like, nope, that's the dark team right now. That's a kingdom of darkness. And she said, I need to stand with the kingdom of light. Friends, whose team do we want to be on? You and your father's house will perish if she does nothing. That's going to happen. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Whose team do we want to play on? Friends, let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Most of us are not going to play on a team where we are the hero that saves the day an entire nation is saved. It's not going to happen. But I'm absolutely convinced that on a day-to-day basis, we have the privilege of playing on God's team and being effective in ways that eternity remembers. And Mike gave us a great, uh, a great account this morning of how as, as he's looking to be in service to the Lord, he didn't put it this way, but he sees God's hand move, aligning things. Because isn't that what happens here? Just things get aligned in such a way with those gatekeepers gonna, who are going to uh, harm the king and that story gets in there and eventually that's access to the king and all this stuff that lines up. But as we walk with the Lord, we will see his hand ordaining and moving and doing significant things. Again, not to save a nation. 
Very few people have that kind of influence. But to be used of God. I told you for the last few years that that when we have this sale out here, we're looking, of course, what got it going was as a fundraiser for Team Vienna. But I've said repeatedly now in the last handful of years, I've seen a new, a new dynamic develop with this. It's because uh, we were serving coffee one time and I look out and I could see this little woman came through with a man and she, as I've said it to you, she needed what was there. She needed a place where she could come and she could shop and she could decide what she's going to pay. And if she's going to pay for those shoes 25 cents, nobody will question her. I said this other dynamic that has happened is we are ministering to people right here before anybody ever gets to Vienna. She was here yesterday. And I watched her go for shoes again. I don't know who gave the shoes. But I tell you, I thank God for whoever it was that donated the shoes. And they were serving on the king's team now. The king of kings and lord of lords. They were serving on the winning team because they said, you know, I got this extra stuff. I don't need it. I'm going to make it available. And it had a dual purpose ramification. Some woman went home with shoes she needed. And some monies were raised to send a team to tell kids about Christ. We have opportunities every day to be a presence for Christ every day to be kind and gentle and loving and and serve others every day. I believe heaven marks every one of them done in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone, every incident matters. God's team is going to win Whose team do we want to play on? Father, thank you for the magnificence of this narrative in which we can see the meta-narrative of how your hand worked in this time in Persia. But Father, as we live out our lives, we time and time again can attest to the meta-narrative that you continue to redeem people, you continue to reach out to people, you continue to order lives for the sake of, of the gospel moving forward. And for that, we thank you that we get to play on your team. I pray that each one of us will take that privilege seriously. In Jesus' name, amen.